Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this Lord's Day, and we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Not as we look at ourselves or look at anything that we have done or look at our church or look at the world, but we look at Christ. And with Christ before us, we draw near with confidence, knowing that you hear us this very moment. Right now, you are here among us because you are everywhere present. You're all-knowing and all-powerful. You are greater than all. You're infinite, and you are worthy of our whole heart. And so we come and we draw near in prayer now, every single one of us. We pray to you, the living God. And you know us. You know our needs. You know our fears. You know our desires, you know our weaknesses, you know all of these things, and you know all things. And may we know that we are not alone because you're with us. And perhaps there are some here who feel that way even now, though they may be surrounded by many. They feel alone. May they know that, Lord, you are here and you have not left them. And you promise in Christ you will never forsake them. And so we do not take your word as some idle word, but we take it as the truth. And so we come this morning with you, with us, knowing that you hear us, knowing that you know our hearts, and we lay them before you even as they are laid bare before you already. And so help us this morning as we turn to your word, help us to lift our eyes to the Savior, Jesus Christ. May we not be fooled by this world. May we not be fooled by its philosophies. May we not be fooled by the news. May we not be fooled by our jobs and think that anything is to be higher in our affections than Jesus Christ. And so help us, Lord. We do give all our burdens to you. We rest in, not in ourselves, but in Christ the Lord. And so be with us as we take up your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. So we are coming now this morning to... The final chapters of the book of Esther. We have been studying it over these last many months. And now we take it up with these last verses here in Esther chapter 9, verses 20 through chapter 10, verse 3. So earlier this year, if you had looked all over the world on Thursday, March 17th, 2022, you would have found many, many, many people, in fact, millions of Jews celebrating. You would have found them doing all sorts of things. You would have found them feasting. You would have found them laughing. You would have heard them singing. You would have even seen them dressing up. And you would have even found them reading. 
Okay, so hearing all that, you would be right to ask, you know, why in the world were they doing all that, and why didn't I hear about millions of Jews having this big celebration all over the world? So what were they doing? Well, what they were doing is they were remembering. They were remembering, and they were rejoicing over what we have been reading and walking through over these last months. And what has that been but the book of Esther? They were rejoicing and glorying over how God delivered his people from Haman's devilish sword of destruction more than 2,000 years ago. Well, this morning, as we come to the final words of Esther here, we come with even greater reason to feast and even greater reason to laugh. And yes, laugh is okay as a believer, to laugh and to be glad and to sing and to rejoice also, partly because of this story in Esther, but certainly because of that story that this story points forward to. And what story is that? What's the gospel story? It's the story of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world to save you and me. So as we read these final words of Esther here, let's come unabashedly with thankfulness in our hearts. Let's come with rejoicing, let's come with gladness, and let's come ready to receive this food of God's holy word this morning, because that is what we are here to do, to hear the words of the living God. And so may we hear them. And so let's begin here in Esther chapter 9, verse 20. May the Lord bless the reading of his good and inerrant word. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obligating them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and cast whore, that is, cast lots to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own 
head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hazarus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feasts, their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus, imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Amen. So as we come to the end of the book of Esther, we have seen that one after another, with each of Haman's efforts to annihilate the Jews, we have seen one by one by one, they have become unraveled and completely undone. And so the final sound that is arising or arose from the city of Susa, it was not one where everyone around them, like their enemies of the Jews, are rejoicing in gladness of having killed and exterminated all of the Jews. That is not the sound that came out of Susa on that day. But instead, the sound that you would have heard in Susa is one of gladness and feasting and rejoicing from the Jews themselves because their enemies were defeated. Amen. And we saw exactly that in Esther chapter 9, verses 18 through 19. And so now... We have the last pivotal piece of this book of Esther. And what is it? But it is an explanation. An explanation. And so as we come to these final verses, these final chapters, we again need to remind ourselves that this is not like 
throw away the last final chapters of the book. Yeah, it kind of gives you all these details and so, so and so, but that is not how we are to receive him. This is the institution or the institutionalization of this feast. It's saying, remember what God has done. So important and not for us to simply say, let's close our Bibles and we're done for the day. Because this doesn't sound awfully interesting to me. Well, that's not the way we're to treat these final chapters. What we find is that it explains the solidifying of the Feast of Purim into the Jewish calendar. And so we come to now a a final feast. A final feast. Now, feasts in the Bible, they were not... You know, feasting for feasting's sake, you know? Kind of like nice little get-togethers. Let's go have a barbecue, maybe talk a little bit, you know, fellowship, maybe play some, some games. Well, that's not exactly what these feasts were about. You know, I, I think back fondly upon the time that I had when I would go to my mamaws and papaws, and we would have a mighty feast together of all sorts of variety of things and if it was summer we would gladly go and get in the pool afterwards as well now that was nice but that is not what the feasts of the bible are about they were given for very very specific reasons now i'm not going to go through all of the various feasts for you this morning, but I can tell you right now what all of them were about and what they were about is they were about remembering. Remembering. Now we get this too. You know, feasts, yeah, that's kind of foreign to us, like the, in the Bible, okay, these feasts of Israel. I don't know much about all that, but you do know about these kind of days of remembering. And we have all sorts of days like this, right, in our calendar. I mean, we just celebrated one of them, Independence Day, and they're all about remembering something. Even even your birthday, it's about remembering something. And I would even urge us as believers to say, why wouldn't we just remember that 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 was the day that God gave us life? And we come before our birthdays and we say, thank you, God, for the life that you give me. I think that is the way that we are to remember and consider and think upon the fact that not just anything happened on that day, but God gave me life that day. That's a way of remembering, and that's what you should remember when you celebrate your birthdays. And so they're about remembering something. Well, this final feast in the book is about remembering as well. And so this feast is a call to remember what happened. (laughs) And so this is why, as we're reading these verses, you see all of these things kind of recounted here that we've read already in the book of Esther. It lays out again for us in kind of a summary sort of fashion all the variety of things that we read about in Esther in verse 22 and verse 24 and 25 And so it reviews for us how Haman had plotted the end of the Jews. And he was, as we see here in verse 24, he was very really the enemy of the Jews. Big time. And this is why 
So we began talking about how all of the world, Jews, were celebrating this very recently, even. Well, this is why whenever, as they read the book of Esther, every year during Purim, each time Haman's name is mentioned in the story, the children all sitting around and listening in on the story, they make a bunch of noise and they'll, they'll stomp their feet, you know, they'll boo, oh, boo, Haman, no good, you know, bad guy, or they'll hiss even or shake rattles to say, this guy was no good, enemy. So if you ever attend Purim and you're wondering what in the world is going on, what that is going on there. Haman was, and his plot was a devilish plot extraordinaire. And so this final feast, then, it comes in contrast to their feasts. Now that may sound strange. (laughs) Okay, so... What do you mean by their feasts? Well, if you remember, kind of dust off all the cobwebs, back in chapter 1, we began the whole book with what? With feasts. (laughs) With a really, 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 really big feast even. One that lasted six months. So feasts galore... However, now that feast there, that feast is not one that we remember, right? I mean, there aren't people going around, have you celebrated the King of Hazarus, you know, great feast this year? You know, they're like, what in the world are you talking about? Who is King of Hazarus? And so on. Well, no, because no one remembers that feast. No one is going around still kind of gawking at the greatness of King of Hazarus. But this feast is remembered. As you walk through the book of Esther, what you see, no accident, and take note of it as you're studying the word of God and laboring over it and thinking upon it. You see feast after feast, kind of like a steady drop of water, and they're all leading up to and foreshadowing this feast. And what feast is that? The Feast of Purim. all pointing forward to this and more. Okay, so now you're probably like, well, what is this feast about? Well, pur, or poor, that is P-U-R, is part of the story. Now, what is that? (laughs) It's not a cat purring or anything like that. It's something different because... So we're actually told in Esther what this is, even here, but back in Esther chapter 3, verse 7, we found the first occasion of this word, poor, was cast by Haman. And so what is that? They were these lots that were being cast by Haman. So this was something akin to dice that would be cast or thrown in order to find out, at least for Haman's case and the Persians' case, they're trying to find out the will of the gods. Now, we know that there are no other gods except the one and the only living God, but for them, they're throwing out these per or lots, trying to decipher the will of the gods to make 
decisions. And so that's on their side. We have a different version of it within or among the Israelites. And so we saw then in chapter 3, Haman, he used these to decide the day that the Jews were to be exterminated. But how we saw his plans changed. (laughs) Such that now, that lot or pur of Purim became a dual symbol. A dual symbol. It had been used as a symbol of death. But God, he turned it into a symbol of deliverance. And we do not shy away from saying so, even though God is not mentioned even once in the book of Esther. God was the one who delivered his people, just like he delivered them in Passover. He delivered them out of Egypt powerfully, mightily. So here, even among foreign nations, again, God delivers his people. So even as Haman is plotting and planning and throwing these lots, and here's the irony of it all. As he is thinking, I'm going to get my will be done. Ringing out over the purr or the lots were the words of Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, if God is over the casting of lots, something as seemingly insignificant as dice. Friends, you can know that he is over much, much more as well. From the wind blowing against your cheek as you walk out the door, God's behind that. We see that again and again, that God is sovereignly over the rain, the snow, the heat, the cold, all these things. He is over that too. Or as you walk along the beach, maybe some of you have done that this summer, and you see the grains of sand there where God is over that, and he knows every single grain of sand on that beach, and he could tell you the number. And God is over and was over the raising up of Esther, and he's over the incredible vastness and wonder of the universe, such that we can say without flinching, God did that maybe like me you saw this week the pictures that were just released from the james webb space telescope if you haven't had a chance to see them pretty incredible (laughs) yes now as you maybe saw them or you perhaps go and don't look it on your phone right now i bet you're like i'm gonna do it don't do it do it afterwards As you look at them, and as we see them, we ought to just look at them and, and not just kind of think, oh, wow, this is, this is really incredible. I mean, chance really is great, right? Is that, is that how we are to look 
out of, over the wind or over the, the universe and its vastness and pictures like that, you know? Man, chance is powerful. Is that what we're supposed to do? Absolutely not. Make no mistake, God did that. And our response is to be one of awe and praise and glory to him, not of chance, but of our great and living God. That's to be our response. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day, even today, pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And so all this does that. Well, Purim, the feast, it serves to say that also God did that. He delivered his people again. How faithful is our great God? How merciful is he? How gracious is he? Even though we put our hands in his face, we do all variety of things against him day after day. He is about the business of delivering people out of bondage and into relationship with him. And so as you hear all this, though, you might be wondering, okay, so God at Feast of Purim, Purim, so what should we do with it? I mean, should we still celebrate it today? I mean, what, what should we think of this? Well, let me say, in all love, friend, if any of you are hearing this, even online, the answer is no. No. Now, why do I say that? Not to celebrate it anymore, because God, he has made another symbol. He has made another dual symbol. And what symbol is that? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ stands as God's call for all not to look just anywhere, but to look to Christ and Christ alone for deliverance. When Christ came, he came as the real thing, as the one about which all festivals in Scripture, all feasts in Scripture, all sacrifices in Scripture point All their fingers with an exclamation point, point to Christ. And if you want to, later today, go read Colossians 2, 16 through 17, which says exactly that. So that the cross, which was a dual symbol, like per, it was a symbol of suffering, the cross, a symbol of suffering, punishment, and death, It is now the symbol of forgiveness, of victory, of life, and of deliverance forever. Now we know, we know Jesus by many names. We've even sung some of them this morning. The great I am, the Alpha and the Omega 
Son of God and Son of Man, the Lamb of God, friend, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And perhaps as we come and we view and see everything that we have seen in the book of Esther, it may be very fitting for us to call him also the Deliverer of Deliverers. Because that's what he is. We don't need to celebrate Purim because Jesus is the deliverer for all the ages. Purim points to Jesus. And if you miss Jesus, you miss the purpose of Purim. Unless we forget... We have a feast also, don't we? And what do we call that? The Lord's Supper. (laughs) The Lord's Supper. In that supper, which we just celebrated last week, we proclaim his death until Christ returns. And he has come and brought about a new covenant through his broken body and his atoning blood, declaring to all that Christ, through him and only him, he delivers. That means the spiritually dead find life from Christ and through Christ. The person who is severed from God, which may be you this morning, they may be cut off no more. The curse of sin he took upon himself in your place that your bonds might be broken forever. And so he calls you and I and all of us in the world this morning and he says, stop your looking people. Look no more for another. The deliverer has come and it is Christ the Lord. And this is why our supper, when we celebrate it here, is a supper of celebration. And it is to be steeped in celebration. Woe to us if the Jews here outdo our celebration of, on the, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. We ought to be rejoicing singing and being glad because we have the greatest reason of all to to sing and rejoice and to be glad. Because the Lord of the universe has delivered us and one day, if you know him, you will sit with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb and you will rightly, and may we even rightly sing, "Twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. As we dine with our Lord. So rejoice in the deliverer of deliverers. Rejoice in the deliverer of deliverers. This, that is to be our response as we come to these final words of the book of Esther. We're not waiting for an Esther or Mordecai or anyone else to come and save us 
God has done it. And so as we are quickly coming to the end of this lively book, the question is, is there life in you? Is there life in you? And I mean that with all my heart because this is not a dreary gospel that we have here, is it? I mean, this building is not a graveyard, is it? We aren't mourners, nor are we in mourning. The gospel is not dead, nor is our Savior. So is there life in you this morning? Yet even so, some of you should be weeping rather than laughing. Because you think you have life and you don't have life. And you do see this as a dreary, cold graveyard of a gospel. But then others of you, we ought to be leaping and singing and rejoicing rather than mourning. As we come on the Lord's Day, it is not a graveyard for people to behold. It is a place that we ought to be coming and rejoicing. Amazed at grace. How could it be that he would save a sinner such as me? So we do not have some dry gospel, some dreary, sad thing that we proclaim. We know the deliverer. And if you know Christ this morning, he has delivered you. So let me ask you then. Does this move you? I mean, move you above anything else, above anybody else in your life, above anything that this world might put before you. You say, no, no, Jesus is better. And in fact, he he doesn't even compare. He is so much infinitely better than anything you can set before me. He is my joy. And I... I'm his and he is mine. So does this move you? Because it ought to move you. And God help you if it doesn't move you. And so as this book then comes to an end, with chapter 10, we're meant to see what the Lord has done. (laughs) We're meant to see what the Lord has done. It might seem here like a strange ending to the book of Esther, right? I mean, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. That's great. (laughs) You know, taxes, that's exactly what I was waiting for. I mean, when was that going to come into the book, you know? Well, of course, that's not the point. (laughs) The point is, in this last chapter is that even in the most unlikeliest situations, God, he rose up, delivers. God rose up, delivers. He took imperfect people like Esther and Mordecai, as he so often does, right, again 
and again and again, and he used them as his tool to bring about deliverance, to bring about his plans, to bring about a resounding glory to his name. And this is why we see here that it ends with Mordecai. All of this was not just one big old coincidence. Mordecai, unknown, forgotten, didn't even really matter at the beginning of this story in the broad scheme of things. At least it seemed that way. This guy became second to the king of all of Persia. Now, how in the world does that happen? God did that. (laughs) That's how it happened. God did it all. And we are to sit back and see what the Lord has done and be amazed. And we say that here and we say that here right now today as well. See how God sent Christ, the deliverer of deliverers, to save sin-captive, devil-serving souls. And so the question isn't who will come and save us. We're not crying out for another president. We're not crying out for some country to rise up and be something else and be God's chosen place. We're not crying out for any of that because we have a Savior. And so that's not the question. It's how might, our question is, how might you declare him who delivered you? Friends, you, if you know Christ this morning, you are a walking testimony of what God has done. You didn't do that. God did that. You didn't cause your spiritually dead heart to just start beating, right? I mean, how is the dead person just going to get up? They're not because they're dead. You know who did that, right? God did that. That's why you're alive this morning. It's all because of grace. All because of Him. That when you go about your workplace, you go about the land, you go about grocery store, you can say, God did this. Amen. He did it. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, as you hear this, you may be saying, okay, but you don't know me. (laughs) I'm a pretty big mess. I don't think I need to be going around telling people what Jesus did for me. Well, let's, let's take a moment and pause and let's just look at your qualifications then. Imperfect. Yes, right? Insufficient. Yes, I'm saying this too. Yes. Weak. Yes. Sinner. Yes. Every one of us. 
That was Esther too, right? That was Mordecai too, right? That was the disciples too, right? That was Paul as well, right? And as you consider all those qualifications and you say, I'm a mess, you forgot one, didn't you? And which one was that? Disciple of a Lord of glory. Yes. And what that means over you is the word qualified. Because God did that. And you're going around telling everyone, He did this. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm imperfect. Yes, I'm insufficient. Yes, I'm weak. But I am a disciple of the Lord of glory who nailed all my sin to the cross. Or you might say, but wait a minute. I don't have enough time for all that. I remember reading once of an old lady who overheard a man say that he had no time. I just simply don't have time. I'm just so busy. I've got so much I'm doing. I'm working so much and so on. Well, she told the man, well, you have got all the time that there is. You have got all the time that there is. And you do also. The question isn't a matter of time or busyness or otherwise, you have the same amount of time as every single one of us. You have the same amount of time as Paul did. You have the same amount of time of every single believer, not pastor, not missionary, not evangelist, who is pouring out their life for Christ as they work 50, 60, 70 hours a week. You name it, I will show you a believer who is sharing the gospel even so. So busyness is not the question. It's simple. We have one question, and it's this. Will you do it? That's it. That's the only question before you is, will you do it? So after reading this incredible book, and after we have seen God in all of his quiet and loud and wonderful providence after hearing the passion and seeing the call to risk, the call for wisdom, the call for humility, after seeing the danger, and hear me again please, the danger of 75 foot tall pride. What happened to that person? Look at Haman. See the danger after seeing all of that. In the war, that our war, it is not against you and me. It is not against us. It is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. After seeing all of these things in the book of Esther, what will your life look like? How will you live for what matters most? How will you live it, your life, this one speck of a a dot in history of your life? How will you live it to make Christ known, treasured, and rejoiced in above everything else? 
That's the question I think we need to come away with as we are coming to the end of this book. How is your Christianity not some dead, dry, heartless thing, but how is it living and beating and lively because you serve and you live for and you adore a living Savior? You live for the deliverer of deliverers. And if you know him, he has delivered you. And so get up, saint. Pant for him. Seek his face. Love Christ above all things. Live for him. Rejoice in him. And glory in your deliverer who has come. And if you're here and you don't know Christ this morning, his call, Jesus is calling for you to cease looking for a deliverer and run to the one who can deliver you right now. If you would believe that he died, was buried, and rose again to pay for all your sin and shame and guilt, and that through faith in Christ, you will be saved. May you do that this morning. And may we take up this book. May we trust our sovereign God. And may we go out victoriously trusting in and heralding the sovereign and sure deliverer of the nations. Our deliverer has come. So go and live accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, we first come and we praise you. We thank you for your deliverance. We ask your forgiveness if we have come or treated this gospel as some dry, weak, powerless thing. May we instead see that, as Romans said, it says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is nothing more powerful in all of the world than this. And you call us, and you give us even the privilege of going and telling others and saying, see what the Lord has done. This as is it me, this is you. You did this. And so help us, each one of us, resolve to do that this morning, to say, I will do that. And if we have clung to some false, dry, and dead gospel that is not a gospel at all, may we this morning, may anyone this morning who doesn't know you, may they look to Christ and find living water and no dry well. And so we pray for your hand that you would work in our hearts this morning. In whatever way you show, may we respond. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.